Thank you so much. Good morning. Well, hopefully now you've turned in your Bibles to Luke chapter, excuse me, uh, Isaiah chapter 40, and we're going to be looking today at verse 1 down through verse 11, and this has to do with the way in which God prepared the means for Christ Jesus to come into this world. So we're going to pause now and we're going to look to our Lord together in prayer. And our Father, as we're coming into your presence, we want to come into your presence giving you um, exclusive praise <clears throat> for who you are, for what you've done, sending Jesus Christ into this world. This wasn't done haphazardly. This wasn't heaven, didn't take place spontaneously. There was a, a well-developed plan from eternity past introduced into history and generation after generation was part and parcel of that plan that you used to eventually bring Jesus Christ into this world to die for our sins. Father, for the various services this morning, for all those that are participating online, whether it be now or in later hours or days, we're asking that in a very profound way that you'll be speaking to our hearts and to our minds as we open your word <clears throat> and seek to know you in all things. So, Father, these moments are important. So we're asking that you'd warm these hearts, you engage these minds, that you would shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. I'm praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It was 2019, and my sister and I were going through various drawers in my parents' home, uh, getting ready for the eventual sale of the house. Both of my parents had gone to be with the Lord in 2018. And... Time and time again, we were coming across various items that gave us reason to pause and to think, look back, reflect upon their lives and their relationship to Jesus Christ. There was something that caught my attention in one of the drawers in my father's uh, portion of where he did his work. And my sister looked at it and said, Gary, what do you make of this? And it wasn't easy to decipher my father's handwriting wasn't necessarily legible. And so I began to look at it very carefully, and the writing on it was attached to um, a clipping out of a daily bread. And it was intermingled with various patents that he had and various chemical formulas of uh, various vaccinations and so on that he was prepping for his work in medical research. And as I was looking it over, there was something that stood out that required my careful attention. It was a diagram, it was a picture, if you will, that he had formed based upon the Daily Bread article of a house. And behind the house was this large tree extending above and beyond. And then in my father's writing, these words... In order to prepare well, 
you need to work beneath the surface. Caught my attention. What was he talking about? How does this relate to life in the work he did in medicine? So I began reading the Daily Bread excerpt that he had clipped out. And it reads, Net Wyeth, an engineer and inventor, speaking about his brother, an artist by the name of Andrew Wyeth. And Andrew did a, a picture of Lafayette's quarters in Pennsylvania with a sycamore tree behind the building. Networth writes, when I first saw the painting, my brother wasn't finished with it. So he showed me a lot of drawings of the trunk and the sycamore's gnarled root system. And I said, but Andrew, where's all that in the picture? And he responded, it's not in the picture, Nat. For you see, for me to get what I want in the part of the tree that's showing, I've got to know thoroughly how it is anchored in back of the house beneath the surface. And he underlined the phrase, beneath the surface. Worth concludes, I find that remarkable. My brother could have drawn the tree above the house with such authenticity because he knew exactly how the thing was beneath the surface. And I think about that as it relates to this passage. Because what was just read to us by Luke was a passage of eight centuries prior, yet filled with such exact detail regarding Christ's coming into this world and the forerunner, John the Baptist, who paved the way. What God was doing, generation by generation, century after century, was that he was developing what I will call a, an essential prophetic root system whereby all the details of Jesus Christ coming into this world would eventually surface. But so often in our, in our rush to Bethlehem, we fail to take into account what God was doing prior to and the way in which God was involved in what I will call the preparatory process that would eventually lead to Jesus Christ entering into this world via Bethlehem to die on the cross at Calvary. So what I want to do with you this morning is to look very carefully at still another prophetic teaching, eight centuries prior, part of the golden era of prophecy in the Old Testament, and draw three significant preparations that God was involved with in creating forward movement towards Bethlehem and Jesus Christ coming into this world. And the first preparation comes out of verse 1 and verse 2. Comfort, 
comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And out of this first preparation unfolds these words that in his preparations for Christ's coming, you begin with me by noting carefully here the comfort that God has provided. Now, notice that what Isaiah is doing at this point is that he is, he is pending these thoughts while he feels the pressure of the Assyrian troops making their way toward Jerusalem. Everybody feels threatened at this point. And so pastorally now, what he does is that he infuses the hearts of those that are hurting with a double emphasis upon the word comfort. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. And what captures my attention is that that was what was going through the mind of a man in the Newer Testament by the name of Simeon who ended up holding the second member of the Trinity, the Godhead, in his arms, where in Jerusalem, you and I were told that there was this man, his name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And in walks this young lady named Mary. Next to her, a man named Joseph. And he will take the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, into his arms. And in the process, sees the fulfillment of what's described here, where he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And what fascinates me is that the word consolation in Luke chapter 2 comes from the same root word as the words comfort in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. Which means then that what God had been promising eight centuries prior, through an extraordinary movement of the root system, God then breaks surface. Up comes Messiah. And now this devout elderly man is holding the second member of the Trinity in his arms. And he's seeing the consolation of, the, of Israel, the comfort, the comfort that God is providing his people. My people, not all people, my people, says your God in verse 1. People need to be comforted. When they're hurting in life, Jesus needs to be presented. For seven years, Terry Anderson was held as a hostage among Shiite Muslims. The former reporter of Associated Press had been taken captive held as a political prisoner. Seven terrible years, he was moved from location to location, hidden successfully, sentenced to horrible loneliness before he had been taken hostage, however. Anderson had given a lot of thought to matters of faith. But now in his captivity, 
Of all times, he was allowed to have a Bible. Listen to his words. Constantly over the years, I found consolation and counsel in the Bible I was given in the first few weeks. He wrote this after his ordeal ended. Now, not other world, this is just a test kind of consolation, but rather comfort from the real immediate voices who had suffered greatly and in ways that seemed so close to what I was going through. I read the Bible more than 50 times in my captivity, cover to cover in those first few years. What God does for the hurting person who belongs to him he offers the dual emphasis of comfort, comfort, and he says, you're my people. It says, you're God. But now what we are given perspective in is that evidently this is the cosmic throne room of the universe where God now is communicating because the words are in the plural. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, cry to her. In other words, there's to be a loud voice. Here's how you go about comforting her. Number one, her warfare has ended. Number two, her iniquity is pardoned. Number three, she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her good works. No, double for all her sins. In other words, now, what you are spotting is the grace of God being declared eight centuries prior to Jesus Christ entering into Bethlehem. And at this moment, your heart's being stirred as you begin to think seriously about the way in which God, eight centuries prior, was working beneath the surface to bring this forth. Some of the family members a few years ago, standing in New York City, Brooklyn Bridge. My mind goes back to a, an, a, an excerpt from the book The Great Bridge by David McCullough. Fascinating story about the building of the Brooklyn Bridge. Arches, the East River, joins Manhattan to Brooklyn. June 1872, the chief engineer of the project wrote these words. To such of the general public as might imagine that no work had been done on the New York Tower because they see no evidence of it above the water, I should simply remark that the amount of the masonry and concrete laid on the foundation during the past winter under water is equal in quantity to the entire masonry of the Brooklyn Tower visible today. And I was astounded. In less than ideal climate conditions, here you have workers beneath the surface laying the foundation for a bridge by which people can come and go. This is what God is now doing beneath the surface. In verses 1 and 2, he's offering a twofold comfort. In verse 2, he's offering three significant reasons why you and I are to be comforted. And now a Terry Anderson in, in captivity is being is able to be able to say, this is, my, this is my comfort. It's found in the word of God. Now, once you and I have 
Once you and I have seized this, understand this, apply this, you build a bridge from verses 1 and 2 to 3 down through verse 8. Because second of all, in his preparations for Christ's coming, note furthermore the voices God has employed. You're going to want to circle the word voice in verse 3. And once again, circle the word of voice in verse 6. Because evidently now, in God's sovereign plan, what he wants to do is to empower certain prophets throughout time for eight centuries prior to Christ's arrival to make statements with regard to what Jesus Christ was all about. And so a voice cries. Everybody's crying here. Verse 2, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, cry to her. Verse 3, a voice cries. And now, what are you thinking? It's going through your mind as you read these words. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. What are you thinking about? Who are you thinking about? There will come a point in time when, in the earliest of stages of his ministry, John the Baptist was being questioned regarding his credentials. And in John chapter 1, in verse 8, 19, he's being asked, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. And so, so then said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Great question. Notice how he describes himself. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord and then references it as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, what God did was God took his time. Eight centuries worth of taking your time to bring Jesus Christ into this world but set up a forerunner prior to Jesus to announce Christ's coming. And what was the first way in which this forerunner was able to announce that Jesus Christ had appeared on the scene? Well, do you remember the story when Mary arose, went in haste into the hill country, entered the house of Zechariah, greeted Elizabeth, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby within her leaped in her womb, and who was that baby? John the Baptist. And his initial work as a forerunner was to alert his mother to the fact that she was standing in the presence of Messiah who was in the womb of Mary, which is a very pro-life statement, by the way. Now, as you begin to ponder the significance of all this then, 
you realize that even within his infancy, John the Baptist was paving the way for Jesus Christ, alerting to those around him that Messiah has come. And so he's the one who's described as in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. Not in the city where, where everybody, where, where life is congested, but rather in the wilderness. He's preparing. And you'll notice in your insert, I've penned these thoughts. In ancient times, whenever it was announced in advance that a king would be arriving in a city or town, the local authorities would make certain the land was cleared of stones and obstacles. A new roadway was constructed in light of the king's coming. This is the imagery here that's being used as God now is speaking in, in ways that are unmistakable about the fact that he's at work. He's doing something significant. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. In verse 4 then, what he will do is utilize topographical imagery to be able to say, and here's how John the Baptist would be paving the way for Jesus Christ. Notice the wording. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low, the uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What God is now doing at this point is that he is allowing you, he's allowing me to be able to see that even though the Assyrians are at hand and all seems lost, there's hope for these people who are about to be taken into captivity. And life seems extraordinarily threatening. Keep in mind, God has a way of comforting his people. In Jerusalem, if you've been there, there's the Holocaust Museum. You've got to take a deep breath when you walk in there. It's not the easiest thing, but it's a necessary thing when you're in Israel to go through. I noticed how soldiers were practicing disciplining their movements outside of the Holocaust and then sitting down for another lecture as our family entered in. Uh, for you see, soldiers in Israel are to carry with them the memory of what's involved in protecting the Jewish people from the tragedies of things such as the Holocaust and Nazism. So you go in there and you ponder what the Nazis had done in World War II. But there's an interesting story that emerges if you explore it a little further of how God can transform horror into hope. For in one of the concentration camps, there was a young lady, her name was Rachel. And she endured, the writer puts it, great hardship from being made to work in the snow with inadequate clothing and watched in horror as many of her friends and family members were killed. But then, there's always a but then with God. But then, one day the guards left unexpectedly and she didn't know the war was over. 
And later that day, some American soldiers arrived to set the prisoners free. One young American soldier told Rachel he had come to rescue her and for her to gather her few possessions. And then he held the door for her and said, After you, ma'am. And she began to cry. And the soldier asked, What's wrong, ma'am? And she said, I can't remember the last time someone held a door open for me. This is the nicest thing anyone has done for me in a very long time. We're told the soldier stayed in touch with Rachel after she was relocated. They became friends. Later, they became husband and wife. Out of a holocaust comes hope. What I want you to see here at this point is that there is this voice that's crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. It's a statement that the king is coming. Everybody in that time period would have understood what was meant. And in verse 5, we are informed, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And the readers would know exactly what was going through the mind of Isaiah. Because the great passage about the glory of the Lord is found in, in Exodus chapter 33, where the Lord said to Moses, who had been asking to see the presence of God, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight. I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. When given the opportunity to ask questions of God and make requests of God, what comes to your mind? This is what came to Moses' mind. Show me your glory. The weightiness of God. The heaviness of God. Moses does not take God lightly. You take a deep breath. In verses 3 down through verse 5, deal with a voice. Then in verses 6 down through 8, a second voice. And once again, there's this voice that's being employed by God, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? And now notice the metaphor being used here. All flesh is grass. All its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. He's saying everything seems so temporary. The grass withers. The flower fades. And then I've marked this. The word of our God will stand forever. Which is again why we go verse by verse. Because God's word is timeless. And when you work with what is timeless, you always be able to work in a matter which is timely. 
And this is exactly how God was working in 1958 when a U.S. soldier was wandering in the streets of Berlin to see the sights. He was lonely. He was longing for home in the fellowship of his congregation back in the States. And he was looking at the reminders of the destruction that came with World War II. The writer tells us, walking through a residential area one evening across the cobblestone street in Berlin, saw an open space edged with flowers, and in the center stood the stone front on what had been a church. Building's no longer there. The rubble had been cleared away in an attempt to fill the empty space with a little park. And the former church's main door was shaped in a Gothic arch. That's all that was left standing. And over it was carved into the stone in German. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. And as he stepped through the arch where the doors had once been, of course, he wasn't inside anything. What was once a place of worship had been reduced to stone. But you see, there is the changeable, and there is the changeless. And God uses the changeless to bring truth to changeable times in which you and I live. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And now what you and I do is we begin to understand the significance of what's being said here. And now we go back to that particular room in the house in Holland, Michigan, where I'm looking at these etchings that my father has. And so I'm looking at this, and Marianne's asking, what does this mean? I'm pondering the significance of, of what's sitting there in front of my very eyes. In order to prepare well, you need to work beneath the surface in the silence of life, in the quiet of life, in the part of life where life gets so overlooked, where people live for surface experiences. God is quietly doing what's necessary to achieve his purposes. And he's doing that with you as well. So what have we said so far? What you and I have explored as we're thinking about God's ways of preparing. There's the comfort that God has provided in one and two. The voices that God has employed in verses three through eight. But now thirdly, the strength that God has exhibited beginning in verse nine through 11. And so now Isaiah, he says, Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Which means then that the Jewish people were to be the avenue by which the gospel was to come forth. Good news, Messiah, Jesus Christ. O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, 
Behold your God, not once, not twice. Three times you see the word behold. Behold your God at the end of verse 9. Behold the Lord God, you see at the beginning of verse 10. Behold his reward is with him. Again in verse 10, what's God saying? Like Moses, you and I should be seekers of God, wanting to behold him. Bob Green, in his book, Good Morning, Mary Sunshine, shares a journal entry about the first year of his daughter's life. He's marking transition in her social development. He writes these words, quote, Now this is something I'm having trouble getting used to. I'll be in bed, you see, and there will be Amanda's head staring back at me. Apparently, I've become one of the objects that fascinate her. It's so strange. After months of having to go to her, now she is choosing to come to me, to look at me, to stare at me, to behold me, and I don't quite know how to react. All I can figure is that she likes the idea of coming in and looking at me. She doesn't expect anything in return. I'll return her gaze. And in a few minutes, she wants to be back in the living room and off she'll crawl again. I've thought about that. You see, the mark of spiritual development is longing to gaze at your sovereign God who has held the oceans in his hands, who has numbered every grain of sand. Kings and nations tremble at his voice. All creation rises to rejoice. Behold your God. Seated on his throne, come let us adore him. Behold our king. Nothing can compare. Come let us adore him, which is what the wise men did when they tracked all these centuries of prophetic utterances, guiding them eventually towards the manger and where the Christ child is to be found. Notice what the three beholds, the continuous usage of the word arm. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. Arm throughout the book of Isaiah carries with the idea, the imagery of strength. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense will is before him. And then notice how strength gets translated into shepherding. He'll tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his what? Arms. And now what he's saying to you and saying to me, I've got you covered. You're my people if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You're my arms. He'll gather the lambs in his arms, carry them in his bosom, gently lead those that are with young. 
And what I see here then are the three preparations uh, that are happening beneath the surface of life that God is using to bring Messiah into the world. What's all that in the picture? It's not in the picture, Nat. For me to get what I want in the part of the tree that's showing, I've got to know thoroughly how it is anchored beneath the surface. And this engineer slash inventor writes, I find this remarkable, that he could draw the trees above above the house with such authenticity because he knew exactly how things were beneath the surface. Where is God at in your life? If all seems quiet right now, all seems silent right now, he's working beneath the surface to achieve his purposes for his glory. Let's stand together. Father, we see richness here in the way you work. Wisdom here as we ponder your word. We see how you use your glory to offer us grace. You say comfort more than once. You say behold more than once. You speak of your arm more than once. And the display of your strength is not to be able to simply put on an exhibition, but rather to take your people into your arms and secure them in your grace and love. So for the people here today, those watching online, those in prior service, all those that find that the struggles of life seem so overwhelming, we're pausing now. We're getting beneath the surface. We're understanding how our sovereign God works. And we're not surprised then when you break through the surface and extend grace to those in need. We praise you. We want to behold you. We want to give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.